Hey, Fellowship family, it is so good to be together with you today as we celebrate the Christ of Christmas. And I want to invite you back this Thursday evening for our Christmas Eve service. It's one of my favorite services of the year. We have candlelight and uh, just celebrate the person of Jesus. This Christmas, we're going to be celebrating Jesus the light and what it looks like, what it means to us is th- uh, key values in our lives of why we need the light of Jesus in our lives. Last week, we talked about Jesus being a full, a fully man and we talked about his humanity and, and what that means for us. This week, we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ, the maker. And to do that, I want to direct your attention to the book of John. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. If you have your Bibles, open there, open it up with me. We're going to spend and kind of put the anchor down today in the book of John. Uh, although in the beginning, I'm going to kind of go throughout the New Testament on what it says about Jesus being God. This is a key value in our faith. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Let's just pause there. This is a key picture. I don't know if you, uh, as you were listening to it or reading it, if, you, if something familiar came along, like the three words, in the beginning. Where have you heard those before? Well, you go back to the Old Testament, right? Go all the way back to the first verse of the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis. It starts out like this. In the beginning, God. That was an intentional statement by John to connect Jesus with the God of creation. And then he follows it up with the whole picture of creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This was an intentional connection showing Jesus, introducing us to Jesus as God. And and the question I have for you, is this the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is shown as God, where he's kind of proclaimed as God? Let me ask a question to you. Where do we read in the scriptures that Jesus Christ is God? The answer is everywhere, everywhere. It's all over the New Testament. It's not hidden in an obscure passage that we've got to trace and we got to talk and we got to get into our groups. If you read the New Testament, you're going to find this simple, simple truth shouted throughout every book of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is God. You're going to see that over and over and over. And you know, here at Fellowship, we really like to focus on the shouts of Scripture. What are plain, what are clear for all of us to read. It doesn't take you reading it a hundred times. You can see it in your first reading. What are things that rise to the surface? And in the New Testament, it's Jesus Christ is God. Look at how Paul refers to Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. It's 15. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him And for him, he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Love that. It's a it was one of the first hymns of the New Testament church. Most people in that day, because the gospel was for everyone, they didn't know how to read. 
They were illiterate. But they were called to understand who Jesus was, especially by the people who were eyewitnesses to his life, who saw his miracles, who saw him die on a cross and who saw him rise from the dead. And here what he refers to Jesus as is a title, firstborn over all creation. That's a confusing word or confusing phrase. What does it mean? Does it mean that God created Jesus? And the answer is no. It actually draws upon Psalm 89, 27, which states, I will make him firstborn the highest of the king, kings of the earth. It has to do with his rights and privileges. But in just in case we're foggy on that, Paul, again, kind of hits it home for us when he says, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible Everything. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Keep reading in the New Testament. You'll come across a passage in the book of Hebrews. We don't know who's written Hebrews, but we know what Hebrews is all about. It's about Jesus Christ being God above everything, preeminent in all things. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says this, that Jesus or he is the radiance of the glory of God And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, again, strong, strong profession that Jesus Christ is God. But it was also in a greeting that the church would give to each other. Their greeting itself would be a profession that Jesus Christ is God. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2, when Paul addresses the church in Ephesus, he says this. Grace and peace from God, our father and Lord Jesus Christ, that title right there paired with the father just professes that Jesus Christ is God to profess that Jesus Christ is God is a requirement of saving faith. It was something that the church was called to. It was something the church believed in. When we baptize, and we're going to be having baptism after this service, I invite you to stay and celebrate the the new life uh, that's in Christ through all who believe. And we baptize in the name of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the hinge. He is the hinge of our faith. He is the person. It is his work that we need. And it is in him that you believe and are saved. He's the hinge. He's not a side element. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a moral person. He wasn't just a good leader that we can kind of take a few things and try to be like him. He is truly God in the flesh the hinge of our faith. It's what John Stott says in basic Christianity when he refers to Jesus. He says, is if he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation of Christianity is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. You take away Jesus from Christianity, you have nothing. You have nothing. If, however, Jesus is God, Well, all the other questions begin to naturally be solved and the door opens to faith. The door opens to life in Christ. The existence of God is proved and the character of God is revealed if Jesus is God. Questions about our realities, our brokenness before God, what must be done to remedy our sin and brokenness, our destiny, our purpose, life after death, hope of eternity with God. All those will be answered. 
Questions about Jesus's teaching will be credible because he spoke the very words of God. This is a quest we must all take. And I want to spend the rest of the time that we have this morning talking about what difference does it make to have Jesus as God? What's the value of Jesus being God in our lives? And I want to kind of give you my own personal journey through this. I grew up in the church. I uh, remember uh, three and four year old memories. So my earliest memories were in church. They weren't necessarily what I learned. They were about the cookies I ate and things like that. But as I grew up in this church, and it was a fairly legalistic church, they preached about Jesus, but they also told you what you should and what you shouldn't do. A lot of rules and a lot of regulations. And I remember when I was 18 years old, I started questioning my faith. I started asking myself, is this the faith of my parents or is this my faith? I remember having a skeptic uh, who was a friend and he asked me, you just believe that because that's what's your, what your parents believed. And I really questioned at that time, do I really believe this? I had other friends who grew up in church with me and they were kind of chucking their faith when they got their car keys. And they kind of said, I can make my own decisions. And they would made their decisions away from being a part of the people of God. Maybe that's your story. Do you know the number one age people check out of their faith is 16? It's because they can start making independent decisions. They get their car. Parents don't want to fight them on a Sunday morning. And they just kind of you stay in bed then. You go have your way, you know. And, and parents keep growing, but, but students stay. I would just want to tell you that if we don't keep growing in our faith, our faith is kind of encapsulated in that time frame. So if you check out at 16, you grow up to be 21, there's a whole bunch of new realities you're going to face at 21. And if you don't have a vibrant faith in Jesus, then you're going to draw back on maybe sixth grade faith. And sixth grade faith doesn't always understand things aren't fair in this world. Sixth grade faith doesn't always understand that, boy, sometimes Christians suffer and are persecuted. They go through pain. They go through health issues. They go through emotional issues. And so sixth grade faith doesn't really stand up. It's not that it's illegitimate faith. It's just that it doesn't stand up to the scrutiny and the other and the deeper questions that you're asking in all the other areas of your lives. You certainly don't. Well, most of us don't act like a sixth grader when in relationships. Some of us do. But we've got to all grow up into that, right? Our faith has to keep growing. So I decided it at my journey at that time that instead of chucking my faith, instead of putting it to the side, that I would literally search the scriptures to find out what I really believed and who I really believed in. I understood that there were things I shouldn't do, but I didn't know why. I just knew and I and it would it kind of built in me a a more self-righteous perspective that I'm better than those people. And I'm, I'm better than the person next to me, depending on the topic. I would always be pick the po- topic. I was better at them, and we can all do that. But it has to come down to what do you believe about Jesus? If you're here and you might be a skeptic, you might be here with someone who believes and you're just kind of checking things out. I want to encourage you in a few areas here. Seek Jesus. Start with Jesus. You may have questions about how the world began. So do I. So do I. We have questions about why is there evil and suffering in the world? Do we really know that? Why do we think bad things happen to good people? Don't start with those questions. Start with the Jesus question. Who was he? And once you start with Jesus, then you can work your way back into all those other questions. Remember, those questions have been along for a long time. 
And some things will be explained to us in eternity. But let's start with Jesus because it's very clear in the scriptures. And I want to just ask you to look through the scriptures. Even if you say, I don't know if I can trust the scriptures. You probably won't as long as you keep it as a, at, a, at an arm's distance. Search the scriptures. Find out what the scriptures say. Because the power of God is in his scriptures. The Holy Spirit enlightens the scriptures in our lives. And so staying away from it isn't going to give us a greater desire for him. So get into the scriptures and conclude. What do the scriptures say about Jesus? And once you have that, then, then faith. Then the question is, do I really believe Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did? But take the time. So many times we check out of difficult seeking. Sometimes we don't want to work out relationships. We'd rather just end them so we don't have to work through conflict. But everything grows when we stick around and we dig in. Everything grows. I'm thankful I have a wife who stuck with me and dug in when she realized there are some inconsistencies in my life. Love grows. Relationships grow when you stick around. So stick with Jesus and dig deeper into his word and you will find him. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Remember that. So let's seek him. What does it mean to have Jesus as God? Number one, to believe Jesus is to believe God. Let's go back to the book of John. John chapter 1, verse 12. It says this. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Do you see the connection with Jesus? And believing in Jesus was to believe in God. He was fully God, fully man. And when you believe in Jesus, you have the right to become the children of God. Turn with me. One of the most famous passages in the Bible is John three sixteen. Look at how it shows Jesus. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I love this because it's an open arm invitation by the God of the universe who says, whosoever believes in Jesus. That is, that's the invitation of God. The call to come to Christ is a call to come to God. The call to be saved by Christ is an open invitation to whoever. I love that. Underline it if you got your Bible open. Whoever, because whoever means me, whoever means you. Everyone is invited into. It's not an exclusive religion for people who just have to measure up with their good actions or their righteousness. It's whosoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's very inclusive, but it's also very specific. It's not so believe in whoever. It's believe in Jesus. But whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. Keep reading in John chapter three. It says this. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And look at verse 18 with me. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Boy, this really kind of brings out the whole picture of what is Jesus as God able to do for us? He's able to save us. Only Jesus saves us. Implied in this picture is a picture of judgment. Those are strong words. 
stick, stick to the scriptures here. Hang with me. To be condemned, when a house is condemned, it's no longer fit for use. And it's ultimately, if nothing changes, it has to be torn down. It has to be, it has to be kind of raised and kind of rebuilt. Your life before God without Jesus is condemned. Jesus came not to condemn this world, but to save this world through him. Anyone who believes will be saved. And that's a picture we're all called to. We're, we were once destined for destruction, but now that those once condemned are offered salvation through Jesus. How? Believe. Believe in Jesus to do something for you you cannot do for yourself. It comes down to a decision. It comes down to a decision, one that Peter made. I love this passage in John chapter 6. Jesus called people not just to believe in him, but to follow him. And a lot of people wanted Jesus for what he could do for them. That's kind of the American dream, Jesus. That I just pray to you and, and I need this, so God give me this. And I want this, so make this happen. And I need this to happen in my life. And so we pray and we kind of do that because we expect God to do things for us. We don't always see ourselves as people who want to follow him, even when it's difficult. And so a lot of people started walking away from Jesus. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, what about you guys? Do you want to leave too? And Peter, I love Peter. He's kind of so visceral here. He's kind of on a great day. He was the first to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. On a bad day, he was the first guy to put his foot in his mouth. But here he is. Here he is in John six sixty eight. He says, Simon Peter answered him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the picture. That's the picture since his belief that Jesus Christ was not just a man, not just a miracle worker, not just a moral leader, but he was God in the flesh. He believed that he was the Holy One of God. What specifically is believing? Well, believing begins with with the, the truth that you're not the center of the universe, but Jesus is. That you can't save yourself, but Jesus can And he will to anyone who calls on his name. It means that you turn from yourself, from your pride, from your sin to the only one who could save you. You see, Jesus, being God in the flesh, lived for you a perfect life you can't live. Many of us are seeking to live a good life, at least compared to the people around us. But God says, nope, sorry, that doesn't measure up. Matter of fact, even your good deeds are like a filthy rag in front of me. We need Jesus. Even the best of us need Jesus because we're not compared to each other. We're compared to holiness. And because of that, as Paul writes in Romans 3, none who are righteous, no, not one, all have fallen short, all fall short of the glory of God. We need Jesus to live for us. He did that. He lived perfectly on this world. We need Jesus to die for us. We don't, even with our own deaths, we cannot satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid the price for our sin. If we could measure up, if we could be good enough, he would have never had to come. But he came because we could not. And he died so that we wouldn't have to. Those who believe in him will never die spiritually. Have eternal life. And then he rose again on the third day. And because he rose again from the dead, he defeated the power of sin and death. 
in our lives. He is God in the flesh and only God could have the power to do that. But you know what? Faith, believing is more than even checking a box of saying a magical prayer that will make all your wildest dreams come true. No, uh, faith is literally turning from your good works to the good news about Jesus. Faith is, is turning from your sin to the righteousness only Jesus can give you. From your way to the way of Jesus. The authentic life is rooted. It's grounded. It's abiding in Christ. And it begins and is sustained by God's grace alone through faith. Faith is simply saying, Jesus, I can't, but you can. Jesus, I, I am done trying to do all these things. And I'm going to trust in you who's already done them. I'm stopping trying. I'm starting trusting. Have you, by faith, come to that point in your walk with Christ? Have you, by faith, made that decision to turn away from your good works, from your sin, to trust in the only one who lived and died and rose again for you? That's the invitation at Christmas is to accept that gift of Jesus. It's my prayer you would believe in him. Once you believe in him, that's the second thing I want to talk to you about is because to know Jesus is to know God. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he said this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I love this. It's, it's when we, when we know, get to know Jesus, we're getting to know more about God. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says this. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. As a follower of Jesus Christ, do you realize that you spread the knowledge of God? through your life. That's what God wants to do. He wants you to live in such a way that when people go, what's Jesus like? They actually have an example through your life and that it's a fragrance, not a stench. Okay. He wants you to, to have a fragrance. He wants you to be pleasing in this world to him and to others that you live an authentic faith. Jesus said in John eight nineteen, he said, I am the light of the world. And he clarifies his statements to his critics and that like the scribes and the Pharisees, that knowing him was knowing God. He says, you need, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He just does the equal. Know me, know the father. How do you know what God is like? Well, get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. He was righteous. He was holy without sin. He not only claimed to be, but everyone who spent time with him professed him to be holy. He was faithful to his father's will. He was patient with those egocentric disciples who followed him and stacked themselves up one against the other. Almost it's comical when Jesus has to step back and said, don't live like this. Don't lead like this. I came to serve, not be served. You do the same. He was someone who loved people who were unloved by the world around them. 
He was he is a person who was truthful with those who lived in pride and yet merciful, kind and compassionate. When he saw a crowd, he could actually see the spiritual barometer of people and he took compassion on them because to them, to him, they were like sheep without a shepherd. He was humble, someone who came to serve and not be served. When you have the question of how much does God know about me? The great question in scripture then is, the, the better question is, is how did Jesus know people? Because Jesus was God. How much did Jesus know about people? He could see into their hearts. He could see their motives. He could see their desires. And he could see their faith. And he affirmed their faith. He loved people. And he give, gave grace to the humble. Because he was God. To know him is to know God. And once you know him, you're invited to love him. That's the first and great commandment with a promise to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. In John 16, 27, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, sharing with them about his future death on the cross. And this is what he said. For the father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Do you see how that belief in God, belief in Jesus was a belief in God, but a love for Jesus was a love for God. I also like in John 14, 24, that it says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me again to love Jesus was to love God. How do you love Jesus? Answer the way Jesus loves you. How do you know what Jesus loves, how he loves you? You you look at his life. Jesus was motivated for everything he did by love. Jesus loved people who were unloved. He took people to places that were off the map to show the depth of his love. Jesus lovingly spoke the truth to the proud and grace to the humble. Jesus loves the unity of believers. Jesus loves us more than we deserve. Jesus gave himself up for us. Jesus will return again for his children and begin a reign of God's love for eternity forever and ever. That's that picture of how do I love Jesus? Can I ask you another question? How do I love the people around me the way Jesus loves you? Because loving Jesus is loving God. He's going to show us how God would love the people around us. How do we love our spouse? The way Jesus loves them. How do we love our kids? The way Jesus loves them. He did not show up to get, but to give his life as a ransom for me. Do you know how many of us show up to love people based on what we can get from them? What they have to offer us, whether it's good feelings or a feeling that I'm no longer alone. Do you know how many of us want to get married just because we we're, we're, we love marriage more than we love that person? Now, there's so many temptations to love in a selfish way. Jesus has taught us to love the way God loves us. Man, I need that. I need that. I need that for the neighbor who plants the tree over my property line. Okay. I need to love them like Jesus does because Joe Hishma doesn't love people like that. I need to love them when someone cuts in front of me and, and slams on their brake and stops at the light and then begins to text and then the light turns green and they keep texting and, and I want to lay on that horn, you know? I want to push them out, you know? That's not the way God loves them. I need a better type of love than my love. 
I need the love of God. When I love Jesus, I love God. And finally, to follow Jesus is to follow God. Jesus didn't just call people to believe in him. He called people to follow him. I like in John 8, 12, where Jesus spoke to them and he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I love that. This is one of the great I am's of Jesus that John really highlights in his presentation of Jesus. And if you were Jewish, you would understand what I am mean. In Greek, it literally sounds ego eimi. And, and it's traced back. Whenever you heard that phrase, you went all the way back to Moses when he was speaking to God in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses was nervous. He didn't want to go on his own authority. And he said, God, when, if you want me to appear before Pharaoh to say, let my people go, whose authority do I tell them? And God says, tell them the I am has sent you. So Jesus, throughout his ministry, would make I am statements to, to make a claim that he was God himself. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. Here he says, I am the light of the world. And he fulfills that prophecy, that Old Testament prophecy, that God would bring a light of salvation, which Isaiah 9 speaks about. It also talks about a light, a light that would guide us back to God. And who would that be? Jesus, who would bring us back to God. I am the light of the world, fulfilled that. Yet Jesus called people not just to believe in him, but to follow him. And by following him, they would follow God. I love it in John 10, verse 27, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And here is the most conclusive statement Jesus would make. I and the father are one. Are one. Those, if you were in Jewish leadership at the religion of that day, you would pick up stones and want to stone him because he was claiming to be God. Even his enemies caught it. He's claiming to be God. Why don't we? It's that picture. It's that call that he and the father are one. How do you follow God? Well, you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus. Following him will follow God. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And it's amazing to see how people followed him, especially in the New Testament church. People who were in that first generation of having seen and been eyewitnesses to the truth of not just Jesus's claims, but Jesus's actions, the reality of the resurrection. He really is who he said he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And they just followed him wherever he took them. And they advanced the gospel to the ends of the earth because they truly believed he was God. Those who followed God, followed Jesus had a deep trust in his person and his power. They had a faithful commitment to obey him no matter the cost. They followed him with endurance during suffering and persecution. Many, many martyred for the gospel. They were, they gave up their lives to give the good news about Jesus. They had a hope of eternal life with a satisfaction and a fulfillment that Jesus really is the greatest joy of their hearts. 
They followed with humility against a culture that just strive for personal greatness. They followed with a desire to trust him, to know him, to love him more than anything, anyone in their lives. You see, in the Roman world, their picture of greatness, a great man was not known by his humility. He was known by his accomplishments. And, you know, we've heard of the 1% in our country who have it all and every one of us want to be like them. But the reality in the Roman world is they were the 2%. And the 98% were hopeless. They couldn't work their way up the ladder. And the 2% had it all. If you take a look at Greek culture and how they built statues, they weren't wimps. They were bowed out. They were just muscular. They, it's what you had. It was how you were built. It's what you have done that makes you great. Jesus was not a great man, according to the Roman world. Matter of fact, our hero was crucified to a tree. To the Jewish community, that's a curse. Jesus became that curse for us. But yet, what is it about our culture today that we value someone who's humble when they go through a difficult time or humble when they experience great victory? And yet we ridicule the person who's arrogant and boasts when they get something. What is it about it? What happened that changed our value system? In his book, Humilitas, author John Dix Dickinson is a historian in Australia. And he went from a secular institution. He traced back, where did we get this value of humility in our culture? Why do we value that right now? Why is that so key? And he traced it back historically to the person of Jesus and those who followed him. Because those who followed Jesus, when they went through victory, they didn't hold it over people. They didn't say, we're the best religion and you're all out. They called people to believe in Jesus with gentleness and respect. They loved people. People who didn't believe. People who rejected them. They continued to love. And they made a huge difference in their cultures. Now, we can all, all make and throw stones at what Christianity has done throughout the ages. We can do that with anyone, though. We could do that about the American culture. We could do that about atheism. I mean, it has its Stalins and all. But, but the, the reality is, is those who authentically followed Jesus made a huge difference in the world that God had placed them. And we're called to that. We're called to follow him. I hope you've seen through the book of John in just our limited minutes that we had here is that this is plain. This is the shout of of the scriptures that Jesus is God and Jesus is calling all of us to believe in him, to know him, to love him, to follow him. Where are you at right now? Maybe a light just came on. Maybe you just realized, well, I've put him off to the side. But now I, I'm, this has given me a greater appetite to get back into God's word and to seek out Jesus. Maybe some of you came here thinking I could earn my way in. And that's why I'm here, because it's the end of the year. and God's keeping a tally and and my good deeds need to outweigh my bad deeds. Let's come back to grace. It's by grace you're saved. It's not by your works. It's not in you boasting. It's you in believing in the work of Jesus for you. Let's come back to Jesus in our celebration of Christmas. Let's make him the greatest part of our celebration. Let's, let's use this time in the word to jettison our thoughts and our time of worship this week 
as we celebrate Christ coming to this earth. Christ fully God, fully man. The man, the maker. And let's worship him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we now know that to believe in Jesus is to believe God. To know him is to know God. To love him is to love God. And to follow him is to follow you. This is the Christ of Christmas. May you work in our hearts that as we celebrate this time with family and friends, or maybe we're lonely and we don't have people around us right now, but we have you. And when we have you, we have God in our lives. We thank you for this wonderful promise, this wonderful gift of Jesus. Thrill our hearts with the maker of the universe who takes an interest in love of us and has provided everything we need for a relationship with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name I pray. Amen.